Imagine a new movie theater has opened right near your house. You love streaming movies, but nothing compares to the entire movie theater experience. They have five screening rooms that will each show a movie based on the five most common movie ratings, G, PG, PG-13, R, and MA. However, due to your local laws, all citizens can only see movies in the first two ratings, which means no movies rated PG-13, R, or MA. No Quentin Tarantino films, Seth Rogen, or most Marvel hero films for anyone. The theater, not wanting to waste any space, decides to show movies in all five screening rooms, but will restrict citizens from entering the last three rooms. Uh-oh. A few citizens were really excited to see the new Avengers movie, which was rated PG-13, so they snuck into the screening room and were caught. Their punishment? They now have to work to produce the corn for their buttery popcorn, without pay, for a week, or two, or three, depending on the movie. Now whose side are you on? The theaters or the sneaky citizens? My name is Jeremy Schaus, and this is Let's Take It Back, a podcast that uncovers and discusses the origins of society's favorites. Today we're going to talk about an idea that should be added to the various dark spots of the past and present, but is almost always overlooked and forgotten. Let's take it back. You may be on the theater side, citing that the sneaky citizens are the ones that broke the rules, and there must be consequences for rule breakers. But, now management is running into not only repeat offenders, but more and more citizens sneaking into the forbidden theaters. I mean, movies of those quality and ratings continue to be made and are released to the community. Running out of resources and capital to hold the rule breakers to their consequences, management implements a membership program that all theatergoers must subscribe to adding a secret fee that pays for the working and living conditions of their new helpers. They also get local businesses to invest in the theater, and exchange make the sneaky citizens produce products for those businesses. Cheap labor runs rampant, and businesses are prospering from it. The theater now begins to hold rule breakers longer, and adds additional reasons why moviegoers can get into trouble, to continue to benefit from the labor. Now, whose side are you on? This scenario may seem simple, easy to understand, and complete nonsense. However, the idea of holding rule breakers in order to make a profit is exactly the idea of privatized prisons. Yes, just like private schools and private companies, there are private prisons around the world, but none more prevalent than in America. The idea of private prisons, or for-profit prisons, is where people are imprisoned by a third party, which is contracted by a government agency. These private prison companies usually enter into contractual agreements with the government, which in turn pays the prison either for each prisoner in the facility or each space available, whether occupied or not. So how did these for-profit prisons begin, and have they made a difference to the criminal justice system? The first ideas of contracting out the confinement of prisoners began shortly after the American Revolution by the British who were unable to send their undesirables to their new lost colony, so they placed them aboard hulks. I'm not referring to the giant green superhero with anger management problems, but to a ship that floats on water, but is unable to travel the seas. They are usually hollowed out and redone to suit a specific purpose, and this purpose was to hold prisoners. The more put in these hulks, the wealthier these hulks became. Fast forward to 1851, and a wooden ship called Waban located in the San Francisco Bay, held 30 prisoners, before political matters forced the prisoners to build a bigger facility on land, 
called Point Quentin, which now held 68 prisoners. The facility was privatized and became San Quentin, which is California's only death row prison. However, no longer private, it set the idea of the privatized for-profit prison system, which rose again during the Reconstruction period after the American Civil War. Specifically in the South, plantation and business owners needed to find a new source of labor as slaves were freed, so what was known as convict leases were utilized. Convict leases overwhelmingly targeted the African-American community and provided prison labor to private parties such as plantations and corporations. Those that leased the prison labor were responsible for feeding, clothing, and housing the prisoners, and the idea of convict leases became widespread throughout the South. In 1898, almost 73% of Alabama's entire state revenue came from convict leases. Pulitzer Prize winner and American novelist Douglas A. Blackman described the idea of convict leases. It was a form of bondage distinctly different from that of the antebellum South, in that for most men, and the relatively few women drawn in, this slavery did not last a lifetime and did not automatically extend from one generation to the next. But it was nonetheless slavery, a system in which armies of free men, guilty of no crimes and entitled by law to freedom, were compelled to labor without compensation, were repeatedly bought and sold, and were forced to do the bidding of white masters through the regular application of extraordinary physical coercion. Convict leases were not officially abolished until Franklin D. Roosevelt ended the practice in 1941. Now let's fast forward 40 years, and the war on drugs is unleashed on the global public. A massive result of this quote-unquote war was a giant increase in the prison population, causing overcrowding and rising costs. These problems impacted local, state, and federal governments, so the investment from private businesses was sought after for capital aid. And with any company, money is always a huge factor when it comes to decision-making. It was normal to contract out certain services of the prison to the private sector, such as food preparation, medical and educational services, and inmate transportation. But now these contracts included the complete management and operation of the entire prison. The first correctional institute to establish itself publicly was the Corrections Corporation of America in 1984. It is now known as Core Civic, and it was founded by three men in Shelby County, Tennessee. One of the founders, T. Don Huto, previously worked within the Arkansas prison system, which had been involved in several scandals between the administration, guards, and prisoners within the system. It was uncovered that prisoners work six days a week, 10 hours a day in vast fields, supervised by guards on horseback, while also working as servants in the plantation houses of the officers. Let's pause really quick and ask, does this sound like slavery to you? Prisoners were also forced into solitary confinement for indefinite periods of time. What is now known as Huto v. Finney, this landmark case was the first successful lawsuit filed by an inmate against a correctional institution, and established the use of the Eighth Amendment to prison practices. During this decade-long trial, Huto would go on to become the head of Arkansas Department of Corrections, and later to establish the first for-profit prison in America. I have yet to see a consequence. Today, there are over 133,000 prisoners housed in private prisons, and more and more companies have jumped into ownership of these institutions. Alongside CoreCivic, there's the GEO Group, Management and Training Corporation, and Community Education Centers. In 2011, the private prison industry took in more than $5 billion. Not only do they make money per prisoner or bed space they have in their facility, but also by trading on Wall Street. 
Some of the prison industry's biggest investors are banks. Wells Fargo has invested almost $100 million in the GEO Group and $6 million in CoreCivic. Other similar investments have come from Bank of America, Fidelity Investments, General Electric, and the Vanguard Group. From 2000 to 2013, CoreCivic stock has risen $34. Although the U.S. Department of Justice has asserted that private prisons are less safe, less secure, and more punitive than other federally owned prisons, they have still renewed contracts with these prison companies. To include the Department of Homeland Security renewing a contract with CoreCivic South Texas Family Residential Center, which detains immigrants. There are some that argue for the private prison system, stating that it costs less per prisoner to house and that the facilities are in better shape than public prisons. However, that is far from the truth. Yes, the average cost of a prisoner in a private prison is about $2,000 less than the prisoner in a public prison, but the population of these private prisoners are mostly minorities. A 2014 study from UC Berkeley stated that the minority population of private prisons is greater due to the fact that minority groups are cheaper to incarcerate. According to the study, for-profit prison operators, in particular CoreCivic and GEO Group, accumulate these low-cost inmates, and I quote, through explicit and implicit exemptions written into contracts between these private prison management companies and state departments of correction. Marie Gottschlack, professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, argued that the prison industry, and I quote, engages in a lot of cherry picking and cost shifting to maintain the illusion that the private sector does it better for less. Studies generally show that private facilities are more dangerous for both correctional officers and inmates than public prisons due to cost-cutting measures, such as spending less on training for correctional officers and paying them lower wages, and providing only the most basic medical care for inmates. In what is known as the Kids for Cash scandal, it was found that the private prison company that runs juvenile detention centers, Mid-Atlantic Youth Services Corp., paid two judges over $2 million to send 2,000 children to their facilities for such crimes as trespassing in vacant buildings or stealing DVDs from Walmart. I'm sorry. As bad as all of this is, to purposely turn kids into slaves to make a profit is some of the lowest and sickest things you can do. But it has not stopped there. Why, you may ask? Well, private prison companies are also some of the biggest lobbyists in America. From 1999 to 2010, the sentencing project found that CoreCivic spent, on average, $1.4 million per year on lobbying at the federal level and employed a yearly average of 70, 70 lobbyists at the state level. What did these privatized prison companies ask for in return? They've asked for increased sentences for offenders and also pushed for the creation of new crimes, executing these initiatives onto state ballots. In 2012, CoreCivic sent a letter to 48 states offering to buy public prisons in exchange for a promise to keep those prisons at least 90% full for 20 years. In 2012, it was reported that the DEA met with CoreCivic to incorporate laws that keep their prisons full. The sad reality is that if you have money, you can create greater influence over those who we elect, those who state they will help and empower the public, when in reality they can only help and empower their financial overlords. You may be at a loss for words or even a loss for hope, but there are groups who have been pushing for the abolishment of private prisons. These include the Presbyterian Church, United Methodist Church, and a group of Southern Catholic bishops. In June 2013, students at Columbia University discovered that the university owned $8 million worth of stock in CoreCivic 
and created the Columbia Prison Divest Group, writing a letter to the president to divest this money and to offer full disclosure of future investments. Two years later, the board voted with the students. Now it's your turn to do something about these new slavery institutions. What is now known as the prison industrial complex, privately owned companies have invested and taken advantage of cheap labor in these private prisons to make the goods that we all use every day. If you want to make a difference, and every little difference counts, stay away from these products and instead invest in others. When it comes to doing your business in the restroom, and I don't want to know, switch from Bounty, AngelSoft, or Charmin and buy products from the Freedom Paper Company. When doing laundry or cleaning dishes, switch from Tide, Gain, or Purell and use True for detergent and hand sanitizer. For the ladies, instead of using Tampax or Always, use products from Honey Pot or Ruby Love. Instead of using Swiffer, Febreze, Old Spice, or Chapsticks, try out Pardo Naturals. Instead of Pantene, Olay, Neutrogena, Clean and Clear, or Aveeno, try Solil Essentials. Instead of Crest, Oral-B, and Listerine, use Gardner's Garden and Coral Oral. Lastly, instead of Band-Aid products, use Brownages or True Color. Oh, and did I mention all of the better products are Black-owned? The private prison industry not only helps to make some of our favorite products unjustly, but they also add to the idea that the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. It only rebranded it. To force prisoners, many of whom are in for petty crimes, to work in unsafe environments for long hours guarded by prisoners who take advantage of their power is truly inhumane. Those who run these prisons not only take advantage of their prisoners, but use their capital to force the hands of legislators in order to create crimes and increase sentences to make more money. The trading and use of people for wealth and production sounds like slavery to me. How about you? Are you with a theater and just want your popcorn, or will you maybe change the system so those kinds of theaters don't exist? Crimes deserve consequences, but just consequences, not ones that treat you like you no longer matter. Let's remember how independent and free all of us actually are on this July 4th. Special thanks to NPR, History.com, Britannica.com, and those who actually push for the end of slavery. All of the products I have mentioned in this episode will be attached to this post, so go check them out. Hope everyone is staying safe out there. My name is Jeremy Schaus, and this has been Let's Take It Back.